0: Welcome back to Laws Flaws, the podcast for the New York University School of Law's Journal of Legislation and Public Policy. My name is Teddy Rube, and I serve as a staff editor for the journal. In this episode, our editor Jamie DiMario and I sat down with Jalakoy Solomon and Salim Zemet from Made to Save, A grassroots initiative dedicated to ensuring communities of color disproportionately impacted by the pandemic have access to COVID-19 vaccines and accurate, timely information about public health resources. In particular, Jalakoy and Saleem spoke about how Made to Save helped build a network of community organizations and activists to create trust in public health institutions during the height of the pandemic. They explained their strategy for using community messengers to effectively combat misinformation and help communities of color access and build public health infrastructure. And they discussed how their model of messaging and organizing can be used to address issues of misinformation in other areas. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Laws Flaws, the podcast of NYU's Journal of Legislation and Public Policy. Uh, As our listeners know, COVID-19 continues to circle the globe, disrupting life and harming communities throughout the U.S. and abroad, especially as new variants circle. The pandemic has also laid bare and exacerbated historical inequities in our economy, healthcare access, uh, inequities that intersect with long-running disparities in American society as uh, a whole. That's why we're thrilled to be joined today by representatives of Made to Save, a national education and grassroots campaign with the goal of saving lives by increasing COVID-19 vaccine access, in particular, uh, in increasing vaccination rates in communities historically excluded by our public health system. Um, so if you both don't mind uh, just taking a moment and introducing yourself and your role uh, for our listeners.
1: Yeah, my name is Jalakoy Solomon. I'm the managing director here at Need to Save. Um, I started in February of last year when we launched this campaign. Uh, I've worked on tons of campaigns at all levels of the ballot and many different states throughout my career, and I was really excited to come um, do this really important work of ensuring that there was equity in the vaccine rollout.
2: And I'm Salim Zimet, he, him, in Oakland, California, the vice president of communications and digital I Made to say, Jal Koy is my boss. Um, and I'm lucky to counter as my boss and yeah, I was really excited to do this work because there was no more important challenge to tackle. Um, and the intersection of the pandemic, pushing everyone to use the internet and using the internet to address the pandemic was extremely exciting and challenging. So excited to be
0: chatting with y'all.
3: We're really excited to get into this conversation. Um, I think sort of starting off, we really are very curious about sort of the origins of the initiative. So I guess, you know, how was Made to Save founded? Like did any specific stories from communities impacted by the virus influence its creation?
1: Yeah. um, As Teddy said earlier, the pandemic has really highlighted and exposed a lot of the inequities that were already, that already existed in our healthcare system and in our um, society at large. Um, And so we knew that we would see those inequities replicated um, as the vaccine rolled out. And so Civic Nation, um, the kind of parent organization of Made to Save, um, decided to launch the Made to Save campaign to ensure that communities that that were hardest hit by uh, the Pandemic and by the virus um, would also have would would be uh, over invested in to ensure that there was equity in the uh, vaccine rollout and in vaccine uptake, uh, and so we that was really kind of the the main impetus of the creation of the organization was understanding these uh, really deep inequities and ensuring that there were that there were dedicated resources to addressing that in the vaccine rollout.
2: And civic nation kind of sits at the intersection of civic institutions and like cultural change makers. That's what they've done through a lot of their um, initiatives and campaigns. And when we all vote, which is um, an organization founded by Michelle Obama is another like very high profile organization civic nation that does somewhat similar work in the voting rights space. So anyway, we leverage that and work with trusted investors on, on the ground to influence the national discourse and also like try to get into those community conversations where decisions and opinions are really formed to close the vaccine equity gap.
3: So, you know, building off of both those responses, it really sounds like you've, you know, laid out what your goals were initially. Um, How have those goals sort of adapted as COVID has evolved over the last year or so? Yeah, our goal
1: has really always been from the beginning and to, and through today, um, of empowering trusted messengers really are kind of our main understanding of what would work to increase vaccine uptake was that communities know best was to invest in communities and know that they, um, they know what misinformation is happening in their community. They know where people typically are and are able to meet people where they're at. Um, And so our key, our main strategy was investing in community organizations um, that were already trusted um, and already had the ear of the the local community. Um, That has been, we've continued to do that throughout the course of the campaign. I think where as the landscape shifted regularly, where there were, um, where there was room for, shifts in our strategy were mostly just around um, ensuring that we were kind of meeting the moment and had a really um, like thoughtful, rapid response infrastructure that was able to produce, was able to do polling. So we would regularly poll to get a a better understanding of what was happening, what messages were working, um, what the research was telling us, and then able to quickly um, push that information down to communities. Um, we also were able to connect our local, this uh, collection of local partners and coalition of local partners to the national um, health infrastructure and to our um, national and local governments um, to make sure that there was a like holistic conversation happening about the needs of communities um, and what, what we could do to kind of meet, meet those needs.
2: And I will say it's definitely a challenge to have met every different moment of the pandemic, you know, thinking about like the Delta surge, the Omicron surge, and also as the vaccines became available to younger people in the U.S. and children, um, making materials to respond to all that, getting those translated into a bunch of languages and understanding what messages would work to meet each moment was a key focus of ours every step of the way.
3: Absolutely, it sounds like you guys have really, you know, adapted to the, to you know, the different variants, um, and have used, utilized the technologies that are available now, and you know, your already existing community platforms to, you know, expand your reach as wide as possible. Um, So I guess this is a this is a really broad question, but, you know, COVID continues to spread and change. I guess what does success from your organization look like in the long term? Like, what is the if, if everything that you could have go right went
1: right, like what is your long-term big picture goal? Yeah, we spent a lot of time thinking about this actually as we stood up our organization. I think our you know main mission was equity in vaccine uptake. Um, but we decided early on to also build a North Star to make sure that not just were we focused on how do we increase uptake rates because there are, a variety of ways you could do that. Some that are like really kind of quick quick and easy and ways that really invest in our um, really about building community and building trust. And so we created a larger North Star around deepening the um, connection between community and public health. And so that really guided us in everything that we did. Um, we, and what that looks like is not just um, Providing resources and funding to community groups, but also making sure that those community groups were connected to their local public health department, um, had a regular channel to the um, and like the White House and the administration and the COVID teams, and making sure that there was this um, really tight, like bottom-up and top-down communication infrastructure um, that would last even beyond me to save. And so that these community groups. I think we had a really great example and a story of a community of a church, a local church that wasn't connected to their public health department before Um, they were able to get a mobile clinic at their, um, you know, at their church services, working with their local department um, and have reflected back to us that in working in this coalition, they now have that permanent connection, that permanent infrastructure, and so the next time there's a pandemic, which will likely happen, um, and the next you know set of public just whether for flu vaccinations or or any other public health needs, um, they now have this this built-in connection and new relationship, and so that I think that's what long-term success looks like for us is um, really creating new. And sustainable relationships in the public health ecosystem, um, and ensuring that, like our, that, our health system does better does better by the people that it serves.
2: Yeah, and just to add real briefly, um, we set out like primarily in the areas with the highest SVI index, a so social vulnerability index. Right, the areas historically disinvested in. And so all the connections that Jalakoy just talked about are happening in areas that traditionally don't have them because these are underinvested in communities with higher levels of inequity. Um, So those connections are just so much more important in those areas. And it's also worth noting that the equity gap has closed significantly when it comes to vaccine uptake, which is, fantastic and definitely uh, it's, it's like impossible for us to like say we like you know our coalition is explicitly responsible for that but we definitely play an important role as did every single human on the planet working to vaccinate um, people in every community so that's great news it's not closed in every community and there's still plenty of work to be done uh, but it has closed significantly especially when compared to when we first started rolling out the vaccines.
0: And as a bit of a follow-up question to sort of both communities that you're sort of targeting and putting resources into, and also um, partner organizations, you mentioned you're really looking for uh, folks who are trusted in communities, who are longtime members, and I guess I'd be interested to hear you talk a little bit more about the process of identifying those groups, which uh, I know can't always be the easiest when you're coming sort of more from a a bird's eye and an outsider's view. So uh, could you talk a little bit more about sort of your criteria for like investing in a a community partner and
1: how you go about that? I'm happy to kick us off. Um, I think or how we did go about um, choosing community groups similar to what Celine just said is that we looked at groups that had, um, that were high on the social vulnerability index, um, which is a index by the government that kind of layers on lots of different factors um, from education rates and income, um, healthcare disparities, et cetera, um, and builds kind of a unified picture of where people are most vulnerable. Uh, And so we knew that that would be a good proxy for where we would see these major gaps and inequities in the vaccine rollout and uptake. Um, And so that was really one of our main guiding factors for which areas we would target. Also where there was um, strong community infrastructure, so where there were already organizations who did similar types of outreach and work um, and were known and trusted by their communities. Um, And so we kind of put, put those together and that built our um, prioritization list. And then we did the work to start reaching out to these groups um, and, you know, kick off our, a grant process where they were able to get res- funding um, and resources from Made to Save um, to build the programs that they knew would work in their community to be able to get, get their people vaccinated.
2: We'll also add that in addition to like using the SVI index to choose where we invested financially and like committed a lot of our staff's time to supporting these groups. We also have a coalition of 600 plus groups that operate in every community in the country, not just high SVI areas. And every single person is a trusted messenger to their community. So we also did try
0: our best to scale that national
2: approach too. And,
0: and something that you also mentioned was sort of making sure that those groups are, are connected, uh, not just with their own communities, but with these sort of bigger networks of whether it's you know more influencer types or sort of political establishment types like in the White House. Um, and I'd be curious to hear whether you see yourself Uh, and Made to Save as continuing in sort of that intermediate role or trying to build those connections so those organizations will be tied into those networks going forward sort of without an organization in the middle?
1: Yeah, exactly. So Made to Save, we started um, in February of last year as an 18-month effort. So it was always the expectation that Made to Save as the intermediary would um, kind of sunset our, our work and our engagement. Um, kind of, we were here to, we knew there would be an acute need, and we were here to kind of meet that need at the time that the vaccines were rolling out. Um, and so that has been, you know, lot along the lines of, the, of that North Star that we use to guide all of our work and thinking about how we were building effective um, and, and yeah sustainable relationships between communities, government, public health infrastructure. Um, was really important to us knowing that we were that we would be kind of out of the picture, in, you know, towards the summer of this year, um, and so I think we, that that is that has been a factor throughout all of our work in the way that we we have structured our coalition. We have regular check-ins with our large coalition, and um, in those in those calls and in those opportunities, we really try to step out of the the center as much as possible so we have folks talking directly to each other um, there's uh the ability for you know folks to connect outside of us like we've, we've really tried to make sure that like we are not in the way of connections being formed and that we are proactively helping folks um get connected um, and build that tighter infrastructure um an, a, an example of that is we have the national coalition but we also created some state-based coalitions um where folks could meet in smaller groups specifically with um, others in their states and communities um, to continue deepening those relationships and um, finding support and resources for events and for ideas that they had um, in their work. Uh, so I think it's been a really key pri- a top priority for us to make sure we're building those relationships and throughout the, the way we've organized our work um, have, have done that in, in our infrastructure.
2: And just to add a brief anecdote, like one of my favorite moments from the campaign is um, when the vaccines were about to be um, rolled out for people under 18, so non-adults. We had uh, Dr. Mark Peters from the FDA on one of our coalition calls. And it was just a magical moment for me that crystallized the impact we have because some of these organizations in the coalition are like one two person, uh, uh, you know, scrappy grassroots organizations that are like doing everything they can to stand up a vaccine clinic or combat mis and disinformation that's localized to their community. And they were on the same playing field as like folks from large national hundred plus person organizations in asking questions of Dr. Peters, uh, sorry, and Dr. Marks and uh, of, you know, getting the information directly from the source.
0: So that's the kind of thing we strive to do in all of our events. And uh, I know it's hard, probably, to generalize uh, because the work is so community specific. But um, you know, if you were to try to generalize uh, about strategies uh, that kind of on the retail level, person to person, or in those communities uh, that have been really effective in encouraging participation and dispelling misinformation, um, you know, what do you think are some of like, kind of the top three most successful things that you've seen?
1: Yeah. Um... I, yeah, three things. It is empowering trusted messengers. It is who who is giving you the information and who is engaging in the conversation with you is so, so sometimes more important than the content of the conversation. Um, I think on the miss and disinformation, it is having like really accurate and timely information that um, you know, we research has shown that for dis and misinformation, it actually is worse to try to uplift um, When you're trying to combat that information, if you are really directly attacking it, um, that is just giving more fuel to that particular uh, piece of disinformation. And so to actually just come from the other side with the clear facts um, and start from there is more effective than uplifting the disinformation. Um, And then I would say um, in language resources. So it is, um, you're unable to really have an impactful conversation conversation with someone if you're not speaking in their language, Um, and even if you are just translating directly from the English to that language, um, there is something missed in not having really thoughtful, intentional, culturally competent information for communities, and so I would say those are three of the main things that have been really um, helpful and impactful for us, Um, and specifically in the trust piece, that's where we've really, I think, um, shown or yeah, we re- we've really shined uh, with, with that is um, we created a, a model for how to have these conversations called the TEO method. Um, and so T stands for building trust. E for expressing empathy, um, and O for helping someone find their own reason. So instead of putting your own message on it, um, it's helping them find their own reason for why they would get vaccinated. Um, It was built on the concept of motivational interviewing, um, which was originally helped or built to help with substance abuse um, disorders. And we really found that a very effective model for how to engage in these conversations. Um, There are a lot of reasons why someone would not get vaccinated. Um, And so approaching them from a place of empathy and trying to understand actually why are the reasons, what are the questions you have, um, having that level of trust built in and then helping them get to their own reason for why this matters to them and why they want to get vaccinated um, really is like, one of the most effective ways to move to move the needle.
2: And just to really briefly add, that's definitely our bread and butter. The TAO method is like something we talk about basically every day. We do lots of trainings on it. We've trained over um, seven thousand people in how to do those and to have those types of trusted vaccine conversations. But we also acknowledge that like some of the national levers are extremely important and effective tactics too. vaccine requirements and especially incentives at the beginning of the vaccine rollout were really critical, effective um, tools. And we had a lot of discussions in the coalition in the first eight months of vaccine rollout where um, we would try to pair vaccine incentives Or not vaccine incentives, incentives overall with a vaccine clinic and pop up like back to school um, vaccine pop up is paired with like a backpack giveaway or free haircuts and that sort of thing Um, was also pretty effective. But our bread and butter is definitely the trusted conversations.
0: Yeah. And I I think to kind of that segues into sort of one piece that we were really curious about uh, asking was sort of this encouragement versus mandate piece that's obviously been very politically controversial um, and also you know has raised a lot of you know, strategic questions about how best to get people to engage uh, and to sort of feel like they have some of that ownership um, over uh, the vaccine piece. Um, and I guess I'd, I'd like to hear you both speak a little bit about How those two relate and what the role of vaccine requirements can Um, be—both those that are mandated by the state, which is sometimes historically a a space of distrust for a lot of marginalized communities, and then also those by private businesses.
1: Yeah, we at Made to Save, we um, we did spend some time thinking about this, and and especially with our mission of focused focusing on communities of color and. Being really intentional about that level of mistrust and um, the validity of why sometimes folks would would have this um, re- would have really valid reasons for for that. Um, where what our position on um, mandates and requirements would be, and as we got into conversations, we talked with partners. We kind of landed on um, seeing requirements as a critical part of the overall infrastructure to get um, our our communities to a safe level of vaccination so that we had protection for for people. Um, we, As we made that decision, we then decided to stand up a part of our work called Vaccines at Work. Our, and so our Vaccines at Work initiative um, works directly with private or with all employers, any employers, um, to, ha- to help them implement these types of requirements, um, but to especially make sure that they are done equitably. Um, so we know that Um, a requirement done in the wrong way can still be harmful to folks and can still have um, unintentional and inequitable impacts on the communities that we're most trying to serve. And so we wanted to make sure that if your organization is doing a requirement, um, that you had the tools and the language and the resources and the training to do it in a way that didn't further um, exacerbate inequities. And so if you are mandating the vaccine, but you are not um, providing time off from work um, to recover from any side effects. If you're not providing um, PTO for you to get your children vaccinated, um, if you're not including your your um, staffers in the conversation around what this requirement would look like, um, that is that will lead to continued inequities in how your employees are experiencing um, this time during the pandemic and so we put together kind of a checklist and a whole suite of resources to provide um, businesses with this information to make sure that they were we had template emails they could send out to their staff about this um sample policies um, we partnered with an organization We the action to provide pro bono legal services um, if you wanted, if you, if you were maybe a small business that didn't have that type of infrastructure to know how to do this in a way that was effective. Um, and so, yeah, we, we made sure we, we provided a suite, suite of resources for folks um, so they could implement these and they could do it in a way that um, helped break down barriers instead of create additional barriers to the vaccine.
2: And I'll just add that we were really disappointed by the Supreme Court ruling on vaccine requirements because at the end of the day, we're talking about lives on the line and um, lives that can be saved by requirements that are done equitably and intentionally. Um, So it's really unfortunate, but we have been really heartened to see so many employers step up and fill that void and um, participate in our programming and get all the resources they can and information they need to do vaccine requirements um, for their business
0: and to keep their employees and customers safe this is a, a journal that focuses on you know public policy and is, is geared both to practitioners uh, and policymakers as well as lawyers and and laypokes um, and something that uh, we were curious about is that there are some states like, our state of New York, that has been very engaged in COVID protocols and vaccine mandates at certain points. Um, and you, it, it appears has been a real partner in some of these uh, pieces. But I know that there's not always that willingness or capacity in some other states or some local jurisdictions. So to what extent does your work focus on you getting policymakers to the right place? Um, you And then ones that maybe aren't there right now?
2: Yeah, that hasn't really been a focus of our campaign. We really are focused on empowering as many trusted messengers as possible, primarily at the local level, but also at the national level. You know, we do have those connections to public health officials and government entities like the CDC and FDA and the White House COVID Task Force that are meaningful when connected to the local level. But we haven't done... Um, state-based advocacy really, but we are supporting so many organizations that do state-based advocacy. So, you know, we are not an organization that that is putting a shot in somebody's arm, but m- many members of our coalition are, and many members of our coalition are also advocating at the state level for policies that um, create more equitable vaccine distribution. And, but that's not something we focus on, but we do focus on building their long-term capacity, connecting them to the right people, supporting their work as best we can.
1: Also, I think something that has been kind of one of my moments where I felt, you know, the awe of the work that we do here um, is how we are able to connect groups on the ground to um, some of these decision makers and those making policies. So, um, similarly to Salim, I remember a call where we had um, one uh, one of, I'm forgetting exactly who, but a member from the CDC on, and we had almost kind of crowdsourced and created some recommendations to them from the field where partners were able to name Um, you know, this in the last rollout, this is what we saw. This is how it actually played out in our communities. Um, We, you know, we need more of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I I don't know if you all realize that this is the impact that that policy had on this particular public health system. Um, And to see it kind of happen in real time, our coalition and and really like local community organizations able to provide feedback to the policy and decision makers around um, how to roll out information and how to, um, yeah, like where where there were breakdowns that were happening between what, um, when, you know, in the government, I'm confident that at no time are folks ever making policy specifically expecting it to fail or not meet the needs of the community. Um, and, and at some point there is a breakdown um, where something is not uh, landing exactly as it should. And it was just, yeah, it was so cool to see those conversations happen um, and in real time, see the impact that bringing this coalition together was able to have on um, ensuring that folks had, had access.
3: I think we want to pivot now a little bit into like some of the specific objections that you guys, that your organization faces in these communities. So I guess, you know, starting out, I'm just really curious, like what are the most common objections to getting the vaccine in the communities that you're working closely with? Are they mainly political, religious, something else entirely? A lot of them, none of
1: them. Yeah, totally. We saw, you know, there are definitely, you know, political and religious objections. Um, but I think the the biggest obstacles that we saw were really the disinformation and then accessibility. Um, and so just there was a, there is a um, really intentional and intense effort to spread disinformation about like many things in our society but especially um we saw it really peak with the vaccines um and because there is a a declining trust in our institutions and because folks have a um there's a rise in people naming that they are not sure who to trust and where to trust. Um, they're turning to their friends their family to trusted community leaders for that information. Um, and that is both, um, good and bad in some ways it is bad because it is harder to have, um, really like megaphone t- type of information where in places where people are seeing it and they are trusting it. Um, but it is good because, um, we know that if we then empower the trusted messengers in people's lives, that 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 is a strong conduit to behavior change and to getting them the information that they need. Um, And so I think the more that organizations like ours that have um, resources and capacity that are are making decisions about investing in in communities, um, really think about trust being their main, like, Driving factor in um, decision making, um, just like how they make decisions, is ensuring that they're empowering um, those trusted messengers and communities. Uh, and then assess- accessibility, you know, again, the kind of language barriers that make it hard um, to get vaccinated. And so if you are reading information that is not in your language, it's hard to understand, um, it makes you more distrustful if you are seeing you know, if multiple organizations are trying to translate information for for you and all those translations are different, you're now seeing different, you know, different information uh, and you're not sure what, what to believe and, and, you know, you're not able to really make that, that best decision for yourself. Um, there are, you know, and there are many different types of dis- um, accessibility issues like rural communities, if you don't have a clinic nearby, if you have to drive, you know, an hour to get to your closest clinic, um, if you, you know, if, if the materials are not in language, I think those are kind of some of the key barriers, uh, that we see for folks not getting vaccinated.
3: So sort of, you know, sort of building off of that, I know you're saying, you know, there's a lot of distrust for the sorts of, you know, governmental institutions that are, um, you know, putting forth vaccine information. I know that your organization focuses a lot on on social media and efforts through, through media to reach communities. So I was just wondering, I know that there's been a lot of attention, uh, you know, about the spread of vaccine misinformation by prominent media personalities, most recently, you know, Joe Rogan and, you know, people like that who have their platform and, you know, can reach an, a wider audience that, you know, may may be more trusting so i guess i was wondering you know how does your how does your organization sort of go about dismantling the those sorts of you know misinformation pipelines that aren't coming from like a government institution but from like another you know trustable public figure
2: yeah it's it's a huge challenge and a huge problem for our society going forward you know one of the things. Um, like taking the vaccine hat off for a second and the public health equity hat off for a second uh, over the last year and a half, I've just been increasingly worried that misinformation and disinformation sit at the intersection of like every single major issue facing our society moving forward, whether it be racial justice or combating climate change. Um, so it is, it's definitely not a problem that's going away anytime soon, nor is it one that we've uh, figured out how to perfectly solve. But, you know, going back to what Jalikoy mentioned earlier, The number one way to address it is not to uplift what's being shared by somebody, especially who's intentionally, um, you know, using disinformation um, to poison the well, so to speak, but to inoculate communities before they're exposed to the mis and disinformation as best we can. Inoculate, like you know, the way a vaccine works to some degree, but in this case, just like arm people with information and get get to folks before. they're seeing the bad information in the world. So there's no there's no easy answers, not not even really a good answer for me on this, but um it's just important to get the facts and empower trusted messengers to communicate with as many people as possible as quickly as possible. Um and to you know the, like the media ecosystem is so incredibly fragmented right now and one of the spaces where we saw a gap and tried to fill it was on TikTok. So we invested really heavily in working with amazing, amazing creators who have already you know, um, forged such a strong bond of trust with their audience um, to reach you know, as many people as possible. And obviously, I've worked with lots of uh, influential um, artists and celebrities and public officials who have trust in various communities to do that. But it's, it's a problem that I don't have a great answer for.
3: I think that was a great answer, um, <laughs> um, but sort of sort of going off that a little bit, you know, I know that you've both emphasized how you want your organization. You understand it's sort of temporary in nature and that you want the work that you've done to, you know, outlast and and create these permanent connections in discourse between, you know, communities and, you know, and advocacy groups and um, so I think, you know, as more as more and more issues, you know, become characterized like by partisan lines, like you know, there there are very clear partisan lines um, when it comes to vaccine information and things like that. So, do you think that you know the work that you're doing here will, you know, will create a successful channel of discourse to dispel? kind of like you were saying, misinformation, not just about the vaccine, but sort of like in general to a lot of other political issues?
1: Yeah, I think this is exactly, you know, as Celine just named, that this, that misinformation is really one of the things that sits at the heart of most of the um, divisions and the challenges that we are currently in and um, finding really effective ways to combat this will be part will be key to the solution for all of these different issues from voting rights to yeah books and schools climate change vaccines and health moving forward Um, and so the like what we are learning the learnings that Made to Save has, plus learnings from of some of these different fields, um, they are all really coalescing around this idea of empowering trusted messengers um, and in building community. There, there's just a, a a breakdown of community that has ha- that has happened over the last few decades, um, and being able to re- rebuild that will be is is the most important thing that we can do. Um, to combat most of the challenges that we're currently facing, and empowering and investing in trusted messengers is um, like strategy number one and tactic number one. And so, we, as long as we continue to center equity and um, trust and honor the communities who know how best to um, empower themselves and and to do the work in their community, um, that we have trust in them as funders. Um, that they, they build that trust in their communities, that they help um, ensure that trust is being built between individuals within their communities. I think that is, um, that's the number one learning we have. And that, that, I think, is what we need, not just for public health, but for all all the challenges we're facing. No, absolutely.
3: Um, your, your response just made me, made me think of another question. I mean, Teddy and I, we're both in law school. So we think of things from like a legal perspective. And one of the main objections to getting the vaccine, at least from, you know, people that I've spoken with on a regular basis is it violates my rights. So I'm just curious as to, you know, how do you combat those, those objections specifically? Do you work with, I know you mentioned before that you work with Um, legal organizations to provide like pro bono counseling and, and things of that nature. But have you found that, you know, having legal advocacy groups helps dispel that specific, like it violates my rights concern?
2: Well, you know, given we don't have a national vaccine requirement, um, I think anyone who believes that and is saying that, like it, it goes back to the Trust, empathy, uh, ownership, um, Teo method we mentioned earlier. Like it, these are difficult, intense, long conversations with individuals that are best had between friends and family, or the trusted messenger we, we've talked about: community leaders, pastors, librarians, um, you know, the employers, that kind of thing. So every like, if many, many people may be saying like, "Don't trample on my rights," and you can't like, uh, I have legal rights here but they each have individualized reasons for ultimately um, solidifying a position that they don't want the vaccine. And the best people to break through to them are those that they love and trust. So, you know, not to be a broken record here, but really does go back to identifying the people who have the trust with that person and starting that conversation, which can take days, weeks, months. It's not, uh, there's, you know, so much research that's gone into the technique of motivational interviewing. And it's not like you can have an hour long conversation with them and change their life forever. Um, It it happens,
0: absolutely. But it's also true that this is hard work that takes time. Yeah, you know, your the sort of focus on those interpersonal connections really reminds me of you certain types of campaign organizing where it really is about these one-on-ones and and kind of building these connections. And, and through building these connections, it seems like you get to sort of building these larger networks of, of communities. And, and that's, uh, it seems like a lot of your work in you know, picking grantee organizations um, is designed to sort of rebuild communities that seems like they've been hollowed out either by a chronic disinvestment by the government uh, or economic disparities that have been um, exacerbated by the decisions of of private businesses and organizations. Um, And kind of going back to kind of the bigger picture of of, communities of color who are especially impacted by these issues, um, I guess I'm kind of curious to hear if especially as regarding some of these private organizations like vaccine manufacturers or healthcare organizations, you know, what what type of steps do you feel like your work is doing to hold some of those groups who have left communities of color behind in the past, um, really sort of lean into those communities now?
1: I think this, you know, goes back to the answer that Celine gave earlier that, you know, we don't, our organization has not done much in the way of ag- advocacy as a national as the national made to save um, but a lot of our all of our community organizations are rooted in community they are organizing their day in and day out you know 365 a year um, and so they are doing a lot of work around pushing um elected officials and community leaders to do 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 right by their communities um, I think in terms of vaccine man- manufacturers, like we have not we have not done done much in a way of having direct relationships or connections with them.
2: Just as an example, one of our um, grantees, United Today Stronger Tomorrow, which operates in Colorado and South Dakota, Utah and Iowa. Um, once the relief legislation was passed, the covid relief bill, um, they were advocating quite heavily in the states they operated in with uh, you know government officials to push that funding in certain directions that they felt were more equitable and impactful for the communities they serve. So
0: that's just one example of one of our grantees doing that. That's a really helpful illustration. Thank you. Um, And I think we have one more sort of question on, on some of these hurdles or objections that uh, individuals and communities have Um, earlier this year in our journal, we actually published a piece on Uh, legal barriers to vaccine mandates in public institutions like schools, which focused on uh, both religious uh, objections and accommodations under civil rights laws and also um, the need for uh, disability accommodations. Uh, And I'd be curious uh, to hear whether in terms of you looking for outreach to grantees or the type of messaging that you're helping community organizations with, whether uh, you've looked at partnerships with religious organizations and communities and also um, disability groups uh, to specifically focus on some of those issues.
1: Yeah, we have these types of groups in our larger coalition. And as we built our vaccines at work program, um, really built it in collaboration with with all of our partners to ensure that um, we weren't missing anything and that we it was really built by the collective. Um, and so we all we have built that program, Vaccines at Work, in partnership with um, HAA, the Health Action Alliance, um, to really provide employers with this information that they need to create these fair and equitable and legal vaccine policies. Um, and so in the sample resources that we've created and in the way that we, um, outlined what it means to really do an equitable requirement. Um, We did kind of outline, you know, specifics around potential exemptions, around um, thinking about disabilities and accommodations, um, and tried to create really, you know, as as many resources as possible so that folks could... um, that we kind of did did as much of the work on the front end so that it was really easy for a business and an organization to implement a policy um, because they kind of had a, a holistic checklist about the things that they should be thinking about
2: there are so many headlines as vaccine requirements from employers were rolled out that, like you know thousands of people losing their jobs um, but we we know two things that like number one it's usually around ninety five to ninety seven percent adoption rates for vaccine requirements and also that they're really effective at saving lives. Um, so that's you know where the
0: focus has to be. Um, I think something that we like to focus on is you know, how you our listeners community members folks can get involved. I, I think the answer is going to be sort of looking for those local community organizations. But if there are also bigger picture pieces, uh, you especially for policymakers or advocates who may be listening to this podcast um, can be thinking about to help where the work is going forward. Um, we'd love to hear any of those opportunities.
2: Yeah, so April 6th is the one-year anniversary of our like public launch date, and we are hosting um, our final vaccine ambassador training, which talks about the Teo method we've mentioned alongside Ways that individuals can combat misinformation, mis- and, um, and we invite everybody to go to made to saveorg impact which will be live um, starting on April 6 or a little bit before, to see all the ways um, they can get involved with us and learn about everything we've discussed further. As we, you know, as Jalakoy mentioned, we're um, beginning to sunset some of our work as we head into the summer, and we want to make sure that all of our key lessons, takeaways, insights are cataloged and distributed as widely as possible um, for the benefit of every organization we're going to save lives and continue combating COVID-19. So made to save.org slash impact is where people will be able to find those sort of resources. And then um, to find the vaccine ambassador event I mentioned and other like volunteer opportunities and other um, different events, you can go to made to save.org slash events. We've got lots of there. We got a training coming up that's really diving deep into the trusting conversations. We've got another event coming up about the state of the pandemic overall, um, just so, like, you know, everyday folks can get um, like research and insights from experts who are tracking COVID data every day. Um, So there's a lot at at made to save.org slash events and made to save.org slash impact. Well, since, you know, we are talking about a legal uh, law school audience to some degree. I do want to plug a uh, partner dog mentioned earlier, We The Action, which is another initiative of Civic Nation where volu- like lawyers can volunteer uh, pro bono to support various important causes. A lot of immigration work. They also have partnered with us to help employers navigate vaccine policies. So just want to plug We The Action and thank you both
0: for your time. Yeah, thank you both so much for speaking with us.
3: Thank you so much. Yes, thank you.